again from John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. And the kids can go. Again, this is Jesus' prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. That's us. Father, just as you and me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have adopted them even as I have loved you. Jesus prayed for us to be one. And maybe it was his longest prayer because he knew what was coming. It is the height of irony that few organizations have fought more and often split more than the church of Jesus Christ, despite Jesus' longest prayer. Take the Baptists. I remember when I was in Union Theological Seminary and we had a high official from the Southern Baptist Convention come to talk to us at Union. And he said out and out, he said, listen, for decades, the main way the Southern Baptists have grown is through church splits. Imagine that, not planned church plantings, church splits. We split and move on down the street and keep growing. By the way, we have more than 100 kinds of Baptist churches alone. We have Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists, General Baptists, Particular Baptists, Seventh-day Baptists, Hardshell Baptists, Duck River Baptists, as well as Two Seed in the Spirit, Predestinarian Baptists, which I have absolutely no idea what that means. And of course, we Anabaptists who believe in peace and reconciliation as a core value have split multiple times into multiple denominations. Thank goodness the Brethren in Christ Church is the one that's right. (laughs) There are over 33,000 Protestant denominations in the world today. 33,000 plus. There is something in fallen nature, have you noticed, that likes to fight and quarrel and split? A man was stranded on a desert island for 10 years. After he was found, they came and they saw he had built two small structures, two small huts. The man was asked what they were for, and he pointed out, he said, the first small hut was a small church I built for myself to remind me that God was with me and to help me keep the faith. They asked, what was the second small hut for? And he said, oh, that's just the church I used to go to. (laughs) Let it marinate. It's funnier than you think. (laughs) One person, church, oh, never mind. Somebody's going to wake up at midnight and go, ah, ha, 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 ha. All right. Today, the church is divided along racial lines, socioeconomic lines, ethnic lines. And what's even sadder is that places of education reinforce these divisions in the name of church growth. James Bryant Smith said that he once attended a talk where the speaker sprinkled salt and pepper on a metal sheet. He then shook the sheet and the salt and pepper began to separate and clump together. The speaker went on to say that the races, like salt and pepper, will always naturally separate. The blacks want to be with blacks, and the whites want to be with whites, and that his illustration proved that separation of the races was natural and God-ordained. This speech, by the way, was given in a church, and it received amens and nodding heads. 
Salt and pepper separating has nothing to do with racial segregation. Salt and pepper separate because of weight, not color. It was appalling science as well as appalling theology. Our differences are good. God made us different so that we could come together for his glory in Jesus Christ. Jesus invites all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts and personalities from all kinds of cultures to come together and work together and worship together and pray together. Jesus wants inclusion, not exclusion. Our differences are not a hindrance to Jesus, but essential to reflecting Christ's vision for what he wants into the world. Imagine 2,000 years ago that you were a Jew, taught that you are part of God's chosen people, and that everyone else called Gentiles are inferior and their mere touch will defile you. And suddenly, one day, something happens to you you didn't expect, and you find yourself in this entity called the church, holding hands and praying with a Greek from Corinth, the height of debauched people. Imagine you are a member of an elite class. And yet you are reaching out to receive a piece of communion from someone you supposedly own and is considered nothing but property. Yet in Christ, you are equal at the Lord's table. Imagine you are a man who has been taught from birth that women are inferior or worse. Yet you are in a worship service with both of you the same together as equals praising God. That was the New Testament church. That was what Christ prayed for in the longest prayer he ever prayed. Plus, for the body of Christ to work as intended, diversity is a necessity. From a functional point of view, each of us is gifted differently. And each gift is needed, Paul wrote. We need toes and fingers, arms and legs, feet and hands, kidneys and livers. And because we all are different in so many ways, a, central, a, a certain amount of conflict is inevitable. If you're different from me and I'm different from you, we are going to disagree on something. That's why Paul wrote, be angry and sin not. In any relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship or family or church, conflict will happen. Conflict in and of itself is not bad. How conflict is handled determines whether it is good or bad. How conflict is handled determines the health of the relationship of any relationship or the health of any organization. Conflict handled correctly deepens intimacy. We often grow closer and grow faster when we stretch out to each other and work through our problems or our tensions. As you consider 33,000 denominations and the length of Jesus' prayer, no challenge is greater than working through our differences constructively. I remember reading something from Philip Yancey, and he said he, said he was over uh, somewhere in Asia, and, he, he, and they, the church was persecuted there. And so he was going to teach them on how to endure persecution. And they said, oh, no, we, we know how to endure persecution. We need teaching on how to get along. Think about that. The church was exploding. The church was spirit-filled. The church was enduring persecution. What was the hard part? Getting along with other Christians. The natural way, the worldly way, the instinctive way people handle conflict is what you learn in Psychology 101. Fight or flight. I know of a Brethren in Christ church in this area where a pastor and a deacon duked it out right in front of the altar. Blood was spilled. 
which fortunately matched the red carpet in the sanctuary. Hallelujah. I know of another church in Harrisburg where twice the pastor and his supporters had fist fights with the non-supporters of the pastor during church board meetings. You know, imagine that. You, have, you duke it out in a meeting and then you have another board meeting and you duke it out again. By the way, after that, I said, we're not meeting for a while. Uh, no, it wasn't us. By the way, the reason I know about th this story is because it was in the newspaper. It was in the Patriot News. Jesus was glorified that day. But often when we fight, we don't duke it out. We just split churches. We just crucify pastors. We just wound people and they leave quietly, sometimes loudly. That's the fight part. The fight part comes when we avoid each other and avoid the hard conversations we need to have. Instead of talking with each other, we talk about each other. We gossip, we slander, or we become passive aggressive. We learn, you know what passive aggressive is? It's learning how to get your shots in while you smile at the other person. Nate, our new youth and adult pastor, comes from Washington, D.C. And he asked at one of our recent staff meetings, have you noticed that people in central Pennsylvania seem to be passive aggressive? In the District of Columbia, we just say what we mean. Here people seem so indirect. And I responded, I'm so glad you pointed that out, Nate. I had never noticed in 38 years here that some people in Pennsylvania were passive aggressive. By the way, that's sarcastic, a form of passive aggressive. And of course, the historic peace churches have mastered the art of passive aggressive. We are great at pretending to be loving while we tell you how disgusting you are to us. That's called having your cake and eating it too. So how do we maintain real unity? The unity Christ prayed for in today's text. Actually, Jesus told us how to in Matthew 18. If there's a conflict, he says, you go to the person in private and discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, bring some mature believers to help you get unstuck. I think there are two steps, by the way, before you even start Matthew 18. The first one is called, thou shalt cool off. You know what I've discovered? As I get madder and madder, I get dumber and dumber. Things come out of my mouth that I don't even mean. Thank goodness all of my conversations have not been recorded. You would be, several of you'd be shocked. <laughs> if you are really, really angry, keep your mouth shut if you're out of control. That's what James said. Be slow to anger, slow to speak. Wait till the adrenaline rush passes. And then do this. Contemplate why you are so angry. What buttons got pushed by that other person? What scabs got ripped off? Ask yourself, what's not only going on with them, what's going on with me? And if you're having trouble figuring it out, take it to a mature believer if you need to. If you're going to handle anger without sinning, those questions need to be asked and answered. By the way, sometimes we just take things too personally. Some of us are kind of sensitive folks. 
James Moore said that some years ago when our son Jeff was about five, we had some excitement in our neighborhood. Just down the street from our house, some puppies were born. A mother cocker spaniel gave birth to six beautiful cocker spaniel puppies. And all the children of the neighborhood were thrilled by the miracle of birth. Fifteen kids ran down to see the new puppies. Jeff was the last to arrive. Fourteen children had already come to see the puppies, to pet them and to pet the mother. And when Jeff got there, number 15, the dog snapped at him. It absolutely broke Jeff's heart, and he ran home crying. He asked, Dad, why did the mother dog snap at me? I wouldn't hurt the puppies. I love the puppies. I didn't mean any harm. Why did she bark at me? And Jim Moore said, Jeff, don't take it personally. It wasn't you. It had nothing to do with you. The mother dog had a 14-kid tolerance, and you were number 15. The mother dog was tired, and she took it out on you. You just walked by at the wrong time. People are like that, too. A lot of times when people are rude or insensitive, you're not the real target. Don't take it so personally. You're number 15. Another question, too, at this point is simply ask, can I, is this worth fighting over? Is this, is this, did what just happened damage my relationship with this person? Or is it something I can really let go of? And if I can let it go, why don't I let it go? You don't have to fight about everything. It's called living in grace with people. But if it hurts you, it hurts you enough to affect the relationship, you must practice Matthew 18. A second thing to do before we practice Matthew 18 is pray. Because if our goal is to restore, to reconcile, to heal, we need our hearts set right and, unif and, and infused with Christ's love. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Why? So you can get them off your enemies list before you talk to them. Am I approaching a friend or a potential friend who I want to reconcile with? Or am I approaching an enemy I want a pound of flesh from? When we've done these two steps, then we're ready to follow Matthew 18. And the first word, you know, Jesus said is, if somebody offends you, if somebody hurts you, go. You go. You, the hurt party, go. Go to the person who has hurt you. Don't wait for them. You go. Not, don't wait until the person sees the errors of their ways and comes to you. You know why? Because people don't often see the errors of their ways. If you're waiting on them, you'll be waiting an awfully long time. So Jesus says, if you're the hurting person, you go. Don't let anger linger until it turns into something worse. Don't let the sun set on your anger, Paul wrote. Don't let anger fester and turn into bitterness or hate. Deal with your... One of the things I've tried to practice in 38 years of being a pastor in this church is try to deal with problems when they are smaller. Because once certain things get momentum, good luck getting the genie back in the bottle. The command to go in Matthew 18 is one of the most violated of all Jesus' commandments. We'd rather stew or gossip or avoid. When you go, please remember, according to one study, that 96% of the time it's possible to predict the outcome of a conversation based on what happens in the first three minutes. 
In other words, and, and, and they've done psychological studies on this, conversations tend to end the way they begin. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't give it three minutes. I, I give it 30 seconds. I found in certain conversations, you can tell whether this is going to work or not in the first 30 seconds. Thank you. <laughs> the Bible says, uh, you know, if I start, by the way, blaming and attacking, I shouldn't be surprised if it comes right back at me. If we start with grace and honesty, that's usually where the conversation will end too. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Soft, by the way, doesn't mean vague or evasive or appeasing or weak. It means I'm aware of my attitude and what my real goals are, and I'm aware of my tone when I speak. You know, I have found it's hard to scream and reconcile at the same time. Don't ask me how I know. In working with conflict, think about what you want to happen and start that way. Finally, be direct. There's what some people call the 10% rule. And the idea is this. Often, after we go through all the work, hard work of setting up a meeting and, and starting a difficult conversation, we shrink back from saying the hardest but most important thing, the reason we were meeting in the first place, the last and hardest 10%. We get vague or, you know, dance around the truth exactly when clarity is most needed in the conversation. Instead of saying, you talked too much at the meeting last night, often we go, you know, I hope that future meetings can be more efficient. Could we all just think about how we could make our meetings more efficient? I mean, who's against efficient, efficiency? We all, we all are for efficiency. But at the, the next meeting, that person will dominate again because we wouldn't say the hard part. You talk too much at the last meeting. Intimacy is not deepened by avoiding the truth. As a matter of fact, I think directness in some ways, if it is not used as a club, can show the health of a relationship. Charlie Shedd, the famous preacher and writer, I, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he said that he and his wife Martha got into a real Donnybrook one night. And it got so bad, she just couldn't even talk to him anymore. And so she wrote him a note. It said, Dear Charlie, I hate you, love Martha. That's what you call direct. And I love that even when she hated him, she hated him in love. We must not avoid the truth. We must not avoid the last 10%. One writer wrote that when Tim Keller started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which is a, a huge, wonderful church, when he, Tim Keller started it, he knew he would have to work disproportionately long hours for about the first three years. He promised his wife, Kathy, that he would cut back after that. But when three years had passed, he did not cut back. Even when Kathy reminded him of his promise again and again, he kept working just as many hours as ever. Just a couple of more months, he kept saying as the months continued to roll by. 
until finally Kathy reached a breaking point. Keller writes, one day when I came home from work, I noticed that the door to our apartment's balcony was open. Just as I was taking off my jacket, I heard a smashing noise coming from the balcony. In another couple of seconds, I heard another one. I walked out to the balcony and to my surprise, saw Kathy sitting on the floor. She had a hammer and next to her was a stack of our wedding china. On the ground were shards of two smashed saucers. What are you doing, Keller asked. She looked up and said, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these awful hours, you are going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you are doing. And then she took another saucer, took the hammer, and smashed it right in front of him. That's what you're doing to us. It splintered into pieces. In the Old Testament, the prophets often dramatically acted out messages of justice when the words alone failed to penetrate people's defenses. They held plumb lines. They married prostitutes. They stopped changing their underwear. They ate bugs, anything to get through. Apparently, Kathy Keller was a prophet, and now she had her husband's full and undivided attention. As Tim describes it, he said, I sat down trembling. I thought she had snapped. I'm listening, I'm listening, he said. And as they talked things through, Tim says, her arguments were the same as they had been for months, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I had to do something. When he finally listened and understood what his wife was saying, he apologized and repented. After things had calmed down a little bit, Tim asked Kathy what had made her lose it to such an extent that she would sacrifice the wedding china she had loved so much. And Kathy replied, when I first came out here, No, Keller replied, when I first came out here, I thought you were having an emotional breakdown. How did you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, Kathy answered, it was no meltdown. It was premeditated. Do you see those three saucers I smashed? I have no cups for them. The cups were broken over the years. I had three saucers to spare. I'm glad you sat down before I had to start breaking the china I really loved. This is not to recommend China breakage as a communication technique. But it is worth asking to every person here, is there any conversation you need to have with your spouse or a friend or a family member and you've been putting it off? Is there some hard thing you need to talk about that's damaging the relationship? And a word to the wise, don't wait until the china starts getting smashed. And don't wait till somebody walks out the door. John, we must do what is necessary to maintain the oneness Christ prayed for in his church. John says that love is the sign that Christ is in our midst. Hank's been preaching on that. Life in the spirit, the hallmark of life in the spirit is life, a life lived in love, a love only the Spirit produces. And we can't get this love by sheer willpower. We won't experience such love by mere human means. We must open our hearts to the Father's heart, 
our spirit to the Holy Spirit. We must pray for our hearts to be filled with a love that bathes heaven. I don't know if you've ever been in a good church fight, but I want to tell you there's no fight like a good church fight. And it can be over, and almost always, I need to tell you this, 90% of the really big church fights are almost always over ego or power. That, that's what they're about. One pastor wrote, Fred Jones' feelings had been hurt. And he was coming to unleash his anger at the board meeting that Wednesday night. He had just completed a new, we had just completed a new education building, and we were making plans to dedicate it. But Fred Jones was determined to stop us. Why? Well, it was really very simple. He had been on every building project committee at the church for 40 years. And this was the first time he was left off that committee. He was hurt and angry. He felt unneeded, left out. And while the education building was going up, Fred had been seething. He was especially upset with Dick Richards, chairman of the building committee. Fred Jones was convincing everyone that everything that had been done was wrong and the building was hazardous, unsafe for children. He had personally inspected the building and was coming to the board meeting to block the opening of the new education wing. He had a long list of grievances, what he considered to be glaring errors made by the, the committee. He had an even longer list of things that Dick Richards, the person who had chaired that committee, had done that Fred considered wrong, unsafe, and illegal. The fur was getting ready to fly. Fred was upset, and he took it out on the board that night. Talk about a stressful situation. It was terrible. He attacked Dick. Dick fought back. Voices were raised. People began to choose sides. Tension was heavy. Resentment and pettiness was ruling the night. Finally, the church board chairman became so scared by the whole thing, he tried to end the meeting prematurely by just saying, everyone on Fred's side, raise your hand. <laughs> but then came a voice from the back of the room. Wait a minute, Mr. Chairman. Wait a minute. Before we vote on anything, I want to say something. It was Laura Bennett. Tears glistened in her eyes. She stood up and began to speak. What is all this talk about sides? about Fred's side and Dick's side. We are a church. We don't choose sides. We are all on the same side. We are all on God's side. We are a family here, God's family. Sides, it breaks my heart, heart to hear us squabble like this. It is breaking God's heart too. And with that, Laura Bennett sat down and there was not a sound in the room. In the silence, the pastor said, we realized that she was right. And we were all ashamed of the way we had been acting. Then Fred Jones stood up and nervously cleared his throat. This antagonist said softly, I am so sorry. I want to apologize to all of you, especially to Dick. I don't know what got into me. Maybe I was jealous. Maybe I just felt left out. But I know now that I was wrong and I was sorry. And when he walked over to Dick Richards, he extended his hand and said quietly, Dick, can you ever forgive me? Dick stood and shook Fred's hand and then smiling through his tears, gave him a great big bear hug. And all the board members stood and applauded. 
And then they all began hugging one another. I just stood there and watched the Holy Spirit at work. And he said, I thought to myself, how beautiful is the picture of reconciliation. And then the pastor said under his breath, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Not until Laura Bennett got up. That is how the church works. It should work anyway. When we violate our unity, we are negating Christ's prayer for us, purchased by him at the highest cost possible. And we are quenching the spirit of God moving among us. You know, I found that churches are scandalized by adultery or the way some people dress or a hundred other things. But seldom do I find that the church is scandalized by broken relationships and bitterness between people in their midst. We are not scandalized by a lack of love. That night, Laura Bennett was, and Jesus Christ is. His love pouring through us was his ultimate gift, not just to the church, but to the world. Our relationships in the church, Jesus said, would be his best advertising. Then the world will know that the Father sent me to the world, Jesus said, if we are one and we love one another. Because, you see, when we love each other, it demonstrates to the world the love that is in Jesus' heart. Our unity is based on a lot of things. It's based on prayer. It's based on worship. It's based on that Jesus is Lord of all of us. It's based on the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is in you. But the acid test of all of that is how we disagree. And you can ask yourself, am I passing the test? I will say one thing about, you know, passing the test. We really, really have to work at reconciliation and unity here because there are so many historical cracks between us ethnically and racially in terms of gender and all of it. I think sometimes the devil licks his chops thinking there's all these historical cracks created by 400 years or plus of terrible history. Surely I can just pull them apart. But that's not what we're about. Greater is he who is in us than the one who wants to tear us up. Greater is the love of Jesus in us than all the hatred in the world that tries to infect us. Greater, greater is the power that operates in us than anything the world tries to seduce us with. We are the body of Christ. Jesus prayed for us and prayed for us and prayed for us and he prays for us still. Let us walk in oneness and in unity and whatever interferes with that, let us deal with it in a Matthew 18 kind of way. If you agree, say amen. amen. Uh, I'm going to let us, let's bow our heads. And in a moment of silence, I want you to decide what the Spirit is saying to you about this sermon in any relationship. What does Jesus want you to do? Who does he want you to go to?
Who does he want you to pray for? Who does he want you to heal a relationship with? Lord Jesus, pour your love on us this morning so that it might pass right through us to each other and to our neighbors and to our world. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins in this area. And help us to listen to you, both through your word and through your spirit. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to